Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 110. First, before thanking our sponsors and getting into the questions, I have an exciting announcement and I will talk more in detail about this at the end of the episode. So do stay on after the questions are answered and you'll hear more details. But just quickly, the announcement is that we will have a scientific triathlon training camp on Mallorca on the 10th to the 17th of April in 2021. And we are now opening up for applications and registrations. We do expect to fill up quickly. So send in your application as soon as you can to have the best possibility of getting yourself a slot there. You can read more and send in your application on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash camp. Before we get into the questions for this episode, as usual, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration create electrolyte supplements that you can use in your training and racing to make sure that you stay hydrated as best as you possibly can, because keep in mind that hydration status is about more than just fluid. There's also the electrolyte balance and in particular the sodium balance that you need to keep in mind because you will lose sodium through your sweat and some people lose more sodium than others. And if you get in too big of a sodium deficit, then that can have all sorts of repercussions in terms of your ability to keep performing at the same output, at the same same level that you have been, especially as the intensity gets higher and the duration gets longer of whether it's a training or race day. So check them out and you can get 15% off your order of electrolyte products with the promo code show 15 on precisionhydration.com. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. I actually just earlier today got a new order in from Roka and one of the things in that order that to me is a bit of an unsung hero of uh, the big Roka lineup is the R1 goggles. I got two of them of different tints for uh, various ambient light conditions in the open water in particular. But uh, as anything when it comes to Roka goggles and Roka eyewear, the optics are uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But one of the things that is really cool about the R1 goggles is that uh, they have uh, found out a way to angle the lenses to allow for a greater field of vision, which essentially means that you can lift your head less when sighting and therefore you will lose less momentum in the water because whenever you sight you will lose a little bit of momentum with the increased field of vision and the lesser lifting of the head required that means that you lose less of that and therefore you can go faster uh, for just such a tiny detail but it can make a difference and i think this is just a brilliant example of design and engineering uh, from roca once again in the r1 goggles so check out the goggles and any other roca products including wetsuits dry suits swim skins and high performance eyewear and prescription glasses on roca.com and get 20% off your order with a promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts now on to today's questions where the first one is from ola in sweden and i will be translating this a bit off the cuff but hopefully i'll do an okay job with that so what ola writes is uh, hi again michael uh, i'm going to uh, uh, get started with your training plan for my training for ironman kalmar in 2021 uh, i have a question about the base training in ahead of 2021 uh, what should you consider regarding the duration of uh, your long ride and your long run during this phase of the season 
I have built up to a four or five hour long ride and uh, more than two hours for my long run uh, during this year that was during 2020. Uh, how much shorter should I go now before starting to build up the duration of those workouts again ahead of the Ironman? Should I go almost as long and maybe do more of zone one training rather than zone two to, to decrease the load? Or what are some considerations I should have? Thank you again for a fantastic podcast. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There is no better. Uh, thanks, Ola. All right, Ola, thank you so much for your question and, uh, of course, for uh, the kind words about the podcast. Uh, some general guidelines around how to think about where to take your long ride and long run during this part of the year, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, we're heading into the winter base training phase. Uh, my opinion is that both the long run and long ride can, and in many cases, should be reduced in duration in this phase of season even though you will still have the long ride and long run there. They will just be shorter than they used to be in your racing season, in your in-season. At least if you are training for an Ironman, that's certainly going to be the case. You won't be doing the same duration now as you were when you were actually specifically preparing for the Ironman. But even for many advanced athletes, at least, that train at a high training volume, training for a half Ironman, We'll probably be doing a lot of long bike rides uh, just to get that endurance in on the bike and uh, for them as well the same same thing applies in my opinion you can quite significantly shorten the duration of that uh, depending on a number of factors and uh, well so let's get to that how much you do reduce these long rides and long runs does depend on various different factors and the one of the first ones and most important ones would be the overall training volume Another one is uh, the environmental conditions, the weather, where you live uh, when we head into winter and how that impacts the training you can and cannot do. So, for example, if you can still ride outdoors through winter, then maybe the long run, long ride, sorry, would be slightly longer than if you're restricted to only indoor training. Also, in this part of the year, it doesn't make sense really to put so much emphasis on the long ride and, and long run that you sacrifice other, other aspects of your training. So although for somebody who is training at a very high volume, let's say they're training 20 hours per week, then it may not be a big deal to put in a three and a half or four hour training ride every week, even during winter. And that might be short compared to what they will be doing if they're training for an Ironman in season. But for somebody on a on a time budget of 10 hours of training per week, which is still a, a really good time budget, don't get me wrong, that, that amount of training for the long ride would just take up too much of the overall training volume and the duration of the, of the long workouts should be balanced better so to the overall training volume available. So in your case, Ola, you write somewhere in your question, and I'm not actually even sure if I read it uh, on air, so to say, but you have it there in the email. You're saying that you've built up to this year averaging 10 hours of training per week. And since you're in, in Sweden, I'm going to presume that during winter, at least uh, some a few months of winter, you will be stuck on the indoor trainer for, for the bike training. I would say that for the long run uh, with a 10 hour per week training volume, 75 to 90 minutes would be a great benchmark to shoot for. And the long ride, two to two and a half hours would be uh, a good benchmark there. That means you're putting in between three and four hours of training in total into these two long workouts 
per week and you still have six to seven hours to fit in the rest of your swims bikes and runs and if you are aiming for let's say three swims bikes and runs per week which i think is a good benchmark for somebody training 10 hours per week that means that on average you will still have 50 to 60 minutes for the remainder of your workouts that's just an average of course so probably the runs might be a little bit shorter and the bikes a bit longer but the main point that i'm trying to make here is that if you go for those durations for your long workouts so 75 to 90 minutes for the for the run and two to two and a half hours for the rides that means that you will still have good availability to make the rest of your training highly productive you have enough time for the rest of your training all this being said i'm absolutely not against doing much longer workouts than what i just said in your example throughout the year they're definitely not harmful to go longer it's only a good thing everything is a bonus almost uh, to to an extent to an extent of course but uh, as you say you can manage the load through other means through intensity for example so you can if you are used to doing a lot of the workouts in zone two maybe in the upper end of zone two when you are in the specific race preparation phase training for an ironman then exchanging a lot of that intensity if not all of that intensity for zone one would be one way of making sure that these long workouts uh, are of an appropriate load for where you are in the season I would say that that option is the best for the athletes that have uh, a lot of hours at their disposal. They're training at high volume, so they can still have a really good frequency of workouts in each discipline, despite doing longer, long workouts. So again, the example being doing a four-hour bike ride uh, every single week or three-and-a-half-hour bike ride every single week. And with the high-volume athletes that I coach, many of them are doing between three and four hours uh, on the bike every single week in their long long bike ride. So that's pretty long. But on the other hand, on the run side of things, I do like to cap the long run to 90 minutes usually for at least quite some time, quite a long period of the base training phase as running is just so much more costly and risky in terms of injuries. And uh, what the intensity management might look like in on the run is that let's say in season your 90 minute run might have been 75 minutes of running at the high end of zone two around your estimated aerobic threshold or lt1 lactate threshold one it's not a high intensity but especially for fast athletes it is a lot faster than just your regular easy smelderosis types of paces uh, it might be somewhere around your ironman race pace and during the winter base training phase we will not start by doing a 90 minute run with 75 minutes of of that kind of running we will start by keeping the run entirely in zone one or at the very low end of zone two and then gradually start to incorporate more and more running at or around the aerobic threshold of course for slower athletes this changes slightly because uh, there isn't such a range of low intensity running available to them so everything blends together a bit more and we basically just tell the athlete to go and run at their easy pace and that's and we also measure that of course with pace and with heart rate but uh, but that's that's basically it we don't need to distinguish so much between zone one and zone two and this is if we're talking about the five zone system but for athletes where this is relevant then yes absolutely exchanging a lot of the zone two training for zone one training is uh, a, a very good way of making sure that the load is managed appropriately 
Another option, though, for the more time-crunched athletes is we can actually manage load in, in the opposite directions. So when athletes are doing, let's say, between one and a half and two and a half hours on the bike for their long ride, uh, it definitely won't be all easy spinning in zone one in a five-zone system. There will be a lot of uh, zone two riding in there, of course, but uh, on the bike more so than on the run, we will probably have a good amount of work around that very high end of zone two, so the aerobic threshold, uh, from basically the very start of winter training. And also, the shorter the long, long ride ends up being, so the more time restricted you are, essentially, the more likely it is to include segments of riding at your tempo uh, power. So riding at zone three in a five-zone model, typically around 80 to 85% of FTP. In other words, the shorter duration of the long ride is to some extent offset by including more moderate intensities. And I do want to emphasize here that this strategy should be used only to maximize the available training time when there is a fixed limit on it. And it doesn't mean that reducing the duration of the workout and making it more intense is as effective as keeping the original duration. But to summarize my answer and make a little bit of a hierarchy or a flowchart out of it, uh, I would uh, summarize this in three different points. And number one here is make sure that during winter training, before heading into a specific preparation period of your season, that your training is well balanced in that you're not sacrificing the overall frequency of workouts or the overall structure of your training just for the sake of getting in workouts that are of a particular length. So yes, the long workouts are great and are highly beneficial, but they should be integrated into an overall well-structured program and you shouldn't sacrifice anything from the rest of your training just to make sure that you can get in a three and a half hour bike ride because it's not worth it in that case. You'd be better off shortening the bike ride and make sure that the rest of your training is long enough and well has enough available time to it so that you can make it productive. Point number two here is that on the run, it makes sense to be a bit more careful than on the bike, both in terms of duration and intensity. For running, I think even very experienced and advanced athletes can get a lot out of 90 minutes for the long run. And there's not much need to go longer than that until you start specific preparation for an event uh, in the case that the event actually demands that, like an Ironman, for example. However, on the bike, it's okay to go pretty long if that fits in with point number one of ensuring that you have a well-structured overall pro program. But uh, on the other uh, side of the coin, if you're time-limited, then it makes sense to make the long ride a bit more of a high-end aerobic ride, so to say, that means including riding at your aerobic threshold, so the high end of zone 2 in a 5-zone system, or even in zone 3, around 80-85% to 85 of FTP. But do not forget that you should also make sure that you have a fair amount of riding that is a fair bit below the aerobic threshold to make sure that you're not right on the edge all the time. Because if you are right at your aerobic threshold or estimated aerobic threshold all the time, what ends up happening is that you're risking actually being slightly above it. You're always on that edge and uh, you're risking using much more carbs than you think you are and much less fat than you think you are and therefore completely neglecting the fat oxidation development that happens through the lower intensity training that we're doing. So this is, this is why I think that for the more intense part of the long ride as well, don't go and do 90 to 95 percent of ftp when you can do 80 to 85 percent of ftp where it's still challenging when you're doing it at the end of a longer ride and you've done a fair bit of it 
but you're still using some fat for fuel and not just carbohydrate because when you get too close to the threshold too close to 100 of ftp then you're going to be doing that work almost almost completely carb dependently number three is if you're forced to train only indoors during winter whether we're talking cycling or running then that's a situation where maybe if ordinarily you would have done a three-hour bike ride if you could have hypothetically been able to do that outdoors and a 90 minute uh, run as your long workouts then you might change those to two hours 20 on the bike so on the turbo trainer and 75 minutes on the run on the treadmill if you find that it gets too boring to train indoors for really long durations which is completely understandable Uh, if that is the case i would also say definitely take it as a priority to start to do things that make you like indoor training more there are things to be done but that's a different discussion and of course it's never going to be quite the same as training outdoors that's uh, that's a given but in this scenario uh, it can make sense to have the long workouts be shorter than they would otherwise have been because you're simply stuck to indoor training throughout winter but do redistribute, redistribute that training volume so that you don't let the indoor training be an excuse for an overall decrease in training volume. You could just make it more evenly distributed. If, you, for example, a three-hour bike ride is just way too long for you, then make it a two-hour bike ride. But maybe a couple of the workouts that might otherwise have been only one hour end up becoming one and a half hours. So you're still getting the same amount of cycling volume, but you don't have those dreaded very long rides on the indoor trainer. And finally, just as in the above example with the more time-restricted athlete that could incorporate more uh, quote-unquote high-end aerobic work at or, or around the aerobic threshold or even in zone three in the tempo zone uh, if you are reducing the duration of your long workouts because of being stuck on the indoor trainer throughout winter then that is something that you could also experiment with uh, just as i described above so thank you again for your question Ola. i hope this helps the next question is from jj in los angeles who writes hi michael i just started triathlon training this year and your podcast is amazing and really helpful i have no background in any of the three sports and i have learned so much i have a quick question that is bothering me with training peaks tss or training stress score for swimming seems to be way off i use the heart rate calculation based on heart rate data from my apple watch 5 but in addition to the heart rate being suspect in the water it ends up giving a very low training stress score for example between 30 and 50 for a one hour swim that i would classify as an rpe rating of perceived exertion of six out of ten if on the other hand i use the the pace based tss calculation in training peaks uh, then it gives me a really high number like 120 which seems way too high when i compare my to my runs for example which are definitely tougher how do you incorporate tss for your clients or yourself when it comes to the swim data i would think this throws things off quite a bit but maybe i'm missing something best jj all right jj thank you for your question first before i forget to mention it you should check your swim threshold setting in training peaks most likely it is uh, not correct because otherwise there's no way that you would be getting 120 tss for a one hour swim that's just not possible you would be swimming doing active swimming for one hour at above your threshold for that to happen so check your threshold pace setting in training peaks to get that right but uh Anyway, before we get in any deeper into this, I just want to 
give a quick, quick a brief overview of training stress score or TSS for newer listeners or listeners who may not know or remember what TSS is. Basically, it's a composite score consisting of the duration of a workout and the intensity of a workout. And intensity can be determined in different ways, either based on pace, for example, in running or in swimming, or based on power in cycling or running, or based on heart rate in any of the sports where you can measure heart rate, including swimming with the right devices. So TSS combines the two with some calculations and, uh, and then gives an, an overall score uh, from, for example, a score of 100 would correspond to to training at your threshold, at your FTP, for example, on the bike for one hour. That would give you an FTP of, or a training stress score of 100 for that hour. And of course, if you ride at your threshold for two hours, which isn't possible, then they would give you a TSS of, of 200 and so on. But then it scales down and up based on the, the intensity and the intensities during any given workout. So, Jade, to get to your question now that we have uh, defined TSS and everybody is with us again, first, uh, let me acknowledge that the issue you're expecting with swim TSS is a real issue. And uh, yeah, I think that you're spot on in your observations there. Those are the kind of things that kinds of things that happen with TSS during swimming. Regarding heart heart rate first, and that uh, that option of calculating TSS, I know that not many people use heart rate in the pool. But uh, you are, and I am as well. So let's tackle that first. Regarding the measurement itself, I'm not familiar with the Apple Watch personally. So uh, so I can't really comment on that. I use the Polar OH1 heart rate monitor, which seems fairly accurate to me. But uh, But that doesn't mean that all devices are accurate. And anyway, even if we assume that the actual measurement is correct, we have some issues with heart rate. First of all, swim heart rate is simply much lower than cycling and running heart rates for a number of reasons. Uh, and in other words, for your TSS to be estimated correctly, you need to specifically know and set your swim threshold heart rate in your training peaks settings. Because if it's using your default heart rate settings, then that will most likely mean that it's basing the calculation on a heart rate threshold that is way, way higher than your actual swim heart rate threshold is. So how do we know our swim threshold heart rate then? Well, it's tricky. I don't really think that you can get that from any of the standard swim tests that are commonly used, like, for example, a 1,000-meter time trial or uh, the CSS test, which is a 400 plus 200-meter time trial. I think the best option is probably... uh, It's a bit of a workaround that I'm not sure is very accurate, but that's what I would use. And that is to find your maximum heart rate for swimming, which you can probably do by doing the CSS test and from that 400 meter all out test. At the end of the test, you should hit close to your maximum heart rate and compare that maximum heart rate to your maximum heart rate in cycling or running and see what the difference is. For example, if your swim maximum heart rate is 160 and your run maximum heart rate is 180, then you could estimate that your threshold heart rate in swimming is also 20 beats per minute lower than your threshold heart rate in running. So if your threshold heart rate in running is 165, then you could estimate that your threshold heart rate in swimming is 145. But to be clear, I really do not know if this is in any way a good way of estimating your threshold heart rate. It's just 
perhaps the way I would go about it if I had to have a good estimate, which I don't, so so I do not. But but anyway, that's that's maybe what I would try to do. Compare your maximum heart rate to to cycling or to running, because otherwise I really don't think that anything like a one thousand or fifteen hundred meter time trial in the pool uh, is going to. You're not going the in, individual inter individual variance of taking, for example a percentage of your average heart rate from such a test would be so big based on the uh, uh, the muscular endurance of the athlete and the technical proficiency in swimming because it's so dependent on that that I don't think that you can make a really good formula uh, the same way that you can in cycling or running. Not saying that the formulas are really good, but they are better, I think, and with, with slightly less inter-individual variance than they would have in swimming. In swimming, it would just be all over the map. That's what I would think anyway, and my theory. So that's why I wouldn't want to, to try to do something like that. But anyway, while I do think that using heart rate in swimming is really, really interesting and valuable, for example, for comparing how you're developing, how your pace-heart rate ratio in the same types of workouts, how that develops across the season. Uh, That's a fantastic use case of heart rate in swimming. I would not use heart rate for my TSS estimate in swimming because I do not trust that I know my threshold swim heart rate or that my athletes, uh, that I can estimate my, my athletes' threshold heart rate for swimming accurately. So the summary here is keep measuring your heart rate, but don't use TSS based on your heart rate. Now, the issues when basing your training stress score calculations on the speed, on the other hand, are also several. First, whenever you use some sort of equipment, you put on fins, you wear, you use a pool boy, you, you use paddles, or you put on a wetsuit, you're going to go at a different speed for the same physiological effort, or you're going to spend a different physiological effort to go at an even more different speed but anyway you're not comparing apples to apples anymore it's like you're suddenly cycling on an elect on a motorized bike instead of <laughs> on your normal bike so so not not fair you can't make tss calculations when your swim workouts include tools such as fins pull boy paddles wetsuit and so on and the fact of the matter is there's pretty much no triathlon swim program that wouldn't use any of these tools on a fairly regular basis. I think that th- that's something that is pretty pretty easy to uh, to state that, that that is the case. So just based on the fact that normal swim training for triathletes does include equipment like this, basically rules out speed-based TSS calculations as any sort of accurate measure of training load. But we have an additional fact here, and that is that swimming speeds, especially for age group triathletes, tend to fall in a very narrow range of speeds, which means that everything from your easy speed to your fast speed is kind of very close to your threshold. So for example, if your swim threshold speed is 1 minute 30 seconds per 100 meters, then 1 minute 40 seconds per 100 meters is probably a fairly easy and sustainable endurance phase for you. And you might not do a whole lot of swimming that is much slower than that. Maybe you do your warm-ups at 142, 143 or something, but not really that much slower. So most of the swimming that you end up doing would be around 85 or even 90% or more of your threshold speed, which means that, of course, since you're always going close to threshold, even though the perception is that it's easy, and it is easy metabolically, but just the, the range of speeds is so small. That means that TSS will be high 
because the relative intensity in terms of speed is much higher than on the bike for example where you can do your easy riding at 50 or 60 percent of ftp and it still feels like well you're still riding you're you're still feeling that you're doing what you should be doing on an easy day so that's a very big difference in in terms of what the the width of the band of speeds available to us is and that really has an impact on tss potentially being quite a bit higher than in most other sports so the things that i would recommend doing to get around these issues would be first and foremost do not rely on swim tss for anything it's a metric that is too easily contaminated with poor input data so for example swimming with a wetsuit in some workouts having paddles and pull boy and so on and so forth so since it's not an accurate metric we shouldn't we shouldn't be using it that's as simple as it is to get a better picture of training load simply look at the duration or the distance that you you've been swimming the second thing that i would recommend doing is if you want to use some sort of training stress training load measure that gets around the issues that we talked about so far then i think that what makes sense to do is to calculate the metric based on rpe based on your rating of perceived exertion from each workout so how you could do that is to simply multiply your session rpe of the workout with the duration of the workout in hours and then multiply again by 10. for example if you swim for one hour exactly and your session RPE was 8, that would give you 1 times 8 times 10, which means 80 TSS. This method can be very consistent and accurate workout to workout. It doesn't suffer from the issues that we discussed before when using speed or heart rate based TSS in swimming. But do keep in mind that you cannot compare this TSS to the TSS that you get from your power meter on the bike or your a GPS watch on the run or your power on the run because those comparisons would not be apples to apples comparisons. You can only use swimming TSS as its own unique metric completely independent of other TSS measures from running and cycling. And by the way, even if you decided that, okay, I'm never using my wetsuit or my pull boy or my paddles or my fins again, I'm only going to be swimming speedos only or my bathing suit only and uh, doing classic swimming up and down the pool and I'm using the speed-based TSS metric. This still applies. You still cannot compare 100 swim TSS with 100 run or 100 bike TSS. There are different sports, so these metrics are not the same. Training Peaks and other platforms that are using uh, similar measures would probably want to try to make you think that you can put them together and you can have a uh, one performance management chart to rule them all, one training stress goal to rule them all because it's a selling point of theirs. But you cannot because they are different sports and uh, the, the load is different. It's not just your uh, metabolic load. It's also about the mechanical load. And that is something that is very, very different. Not to mention the fact that metabolic load as well when you're using different muscle groups would be different. So this is not to bash at all on Training Peaks or, or other platforms. Training Peaks in particular, I still think is the best platform out there. But uh, just don't aggregate those different TSS measures. What I do in my coaching uh, is to simply, I ignore the TSS. I let it be as it is. I don't change it or anything, but I choose to ignore it. And when it comes to measuring uh, the training load from swimming, I look at the total swim distance as the main method to assessing the training load. 
but I also look at RPE, at session RPE, to get a good idea of the intensity on a session by session and on a training block average basis. Now, of course, RPE is not a measure of just intensity, but it's an integrated metric that takes uh, into account volume as well as intensity and also even things like where you're tired on that day and how much training did you do the day before, and so on and so forth. It's by no means perfect, but it goes some ways of giving us a measure of intensity at least. And definitely using these two metrics, the total distance, so the training volume and the session RPE, when using these separately, it's going to be a much, much better method than using just your classic swim TSS, which for the reasons listed above, garbage in, garbage out, and all that just isn't going to be accurate. So that's my take on using RPE instead. And to give you an example on how you can use the two, so using distance separately and an RPE separately, if an athlete is stagnant in their swimming, then first you might look at their weekly training volume and see if you get a clue from there. Maybe we need to increase it because they've been, uh, they simply gotten used to this volume by now. They've been at the same volume forever and ever, and we might need to increase it to get a new stimulus. Or maybe it is the opposite and the volume actually has increased very recently and increased very drastically. And the reason for stagnation is that the athlete is no longer able to recover from the new training volume. On the other hand, if we don't find any clues in the, uh, in the volume, we can look at the RPE trends. And if we see, for example, that RPE is going down, maybe it could be that we're not getting enough of an intensity stimulus for the athlete to keep improving. And vice versa, if the RPE trend is going upwards, so RPE is getting higher, then that could be a re reflection of the athlete being a bit overcooked, so everything feels harder. Or it could be an indication that uh, the intensity is actually increasing and maybe in a non-productive manner. So that was just one example of how you can break apart volume and intensity. Intensity measured with uh, a bit of a proxy for intensity, RPE to say the least, but one that I think is better than TSS. And uh, while well, separating the two, volume and RPE separately, I definitely think beats TSS when it comes to swimming in particular. So I hope this helps JJ and I hope this helps uh, all other listeners. This is, I know, a very common question. And the same thing applies to strength training, actually. Uh, you just don't assign any TSS to your strength training because it's even less an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. So, so don't even think about doing that. Uh, that's to just preempt any questions that might come up about strength training, which I, I know I've had questions about before as well. Well, that's it for the questions in today's Q&A. But before we go, let's talk a bit more about the training camp that I'm super excited to, to have coming up on Mallorca in 2021. So this will be a scientific triathlon training camp where scientific triathlon athletes from uh, from coach, coaches James, Locky, David and myself uh, and uh, also podcast listeners. So we're now opening it up for you guys. And uh, basically, I will have all the information on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash camp. So do go there and look things up. But it's going to be, in short, six training days uh, on Mallorca, seven nights at the hotel, 
and we're going to be doing this uh, in collaboration with Next Level Camp who are uh, very used to organizing training camps they have done that at the, the location on Mallorca where we're going to which is Port Blue Club Polentia Resort and Spa uh, in the very best biking area of the island they've done camps there for years and years has have hosted thousands of athletes over the years and know the ins and outs of everything so the logistics will be completely taken care of and us scientific triathlon coaches can focus on really coaching so there will be a lot of uh, available attention to all the athletes which is great and uh, the facilities are excellent there's a 25 meter pool right at the hotel brilliant open water swimming the one of some of the most beautiful riding in the world at the beautiful formentor peninsula there's a gym and there's a spa and there's a bike garage slash workshop area with cleaning and tools and again there will just be tons of great coaching there will even be evening workshops or seminars to get more information when you're uh, when you're done training for the day so plenty of learning opportunities pricing will be 690 euros in a double room and we can pair athletes together so if you're coming alone then uh, we we can easily set you up with somebody else who has also uh, indicated that they would be up for sharing a room so that you can get the cheaper pricing level otherwise if you want a room for yourself then that's 828 euros uh, for a single room and there are covid19 refund policies in place so there will be full refunds in case of spain spain's border being closed for your nationality or country to travel from and if you are forced to quarantine uh, upon arrival in spain or when you return to your home destination or if your government places spain in a travel category that leaves you with no possibility to have a travel insurance that covers you so in all of those situations you can't travel because the border is closed to you or you will have to quarantine when you get to spain or when you get back etc there will be refund policies so that is all going to be uh, a risk-free signing up for the camp itself these are of course unpredictable times and we can't be certain of anything but the one thing we can do is to eliminate the risk associated with signing up for the camp and huge thanks again to our partners next level camp for helping arrange this as they are the ones negotiating with the hotel and that is what has made these covid19 refund policies possible uh, so uh, so it is it should be a risk-free process to sign up of course you need to think about when is the best time to book your flight tickets as that's not included in the in the camp fee but uh, well i should say that included in the camp fee uh, would be accommodation and all the training facilities and all the coaching and uh, then what's not included is transport from the airport uh, the flights themselves and uh, if you need to rent a bike then that can be done there is bike rental available or you can bring your own bike uh, also at the hotel a half board is included so breakfast and uh, one main meal uh, excluding drinks so uh, that's all that's included all right well go to scientifictriathlon.com for slash camp and uh, apply for the camp and again i do expect that we will fill up pretty quickly so uh, i would encourage you to do it as soon as possible to make sure that uh, we get to see you on mallorca in april 2021 again the dates are april 10th to 17th finally thank you to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race. 
and get 15% off your order of electrolytes with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with a promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>